0: This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 34 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by two really great guests. They're the hosts of Point Free, which is an awesome video series about functional programming in Swift. First up, we have Steven Sellis. Welcome to the show, Steven. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. And of course, we also have your partner in crime, Mr. Brandon Williams. Welcome, Brandon. Hi, thanks. So it's really great to have you guys on. I am hearing more and more about Point Free and people talking about how much they like it. And now that me and Steven met in Spain, we were like... We should totally do something together. So here we are.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Thanks for having us. Uh, we're excited to chat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about Point Free. We're going to talk about functional programming and that stuff later. Uh, but first, I'm kind of curious, and I want to hear how you two started working together, because I know that you both were iOS developers at Kickstarter before. Uh, was that kind of how Brandon met Steven?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had started at Kickstarter quite a while ago, like in 2012, and I was hired as the first iOS engineer, and I was the only one for like the first three years. And then I think maybe in 2015 or 2016, uh, Steven had joined and uh, that was the first time uh, I had met him. And uh, I had interviewed him as an iOS engineer, but when he had started, he'd actually gotten pulled off to do like a ton of backend work. So he was doing Ruby stuff for a long time and just kind of chatting to me about iOS on the side. And then he got to do a little bit more iOS work and, and that's when we first started collaborating.
0: So, uh, Brandon, you, you pulled uh, Steven out from the Ruby world and into the Swift world.
1: Yeah, it took a while, but finally... Uh, although then after a while he got pulled right back, but I don't know, <laughs> there were times we got to to
0: work together. Awesome. So at Kickstarter, you were working completely in the open, like the app itself was an open source project. So what was that like? Yeah,
1: I mean, that, that was really great. Uh, we did that towards, uh, like, let's see, I guess that was in 2016... Um, so that was there a number of years before we ever even got to that point. But yeah, we had, we had just released the Android app, which uh, we had built like in a functional style and we had just started doing uh, the iOS app, which was originally Objective-C since I started in 2012. We were, but we we're getting Swift in it and we we're like, rewriting it in Swift. And we were like, we're having so much fun doing these things and, we're, and we think we're doing so many interesting things that we would just want to open source it. And so shortly after we released like the 3.0, like big swift rewrite, we just open sourced all of the iOS code base, all of the Android code base. And it's just been like one of the best tools that we've had to show how functional programming can live in a large like production code base that entire team is working on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because that's kind of a um, sometimes underestimated aspect of open source. The fact that you can use it for teaching and you can use it as an example. And especially with something like this, when you're kind of writing an app in a kind of alternative way, if you will, to actually have that like really concrete example must be really, really valuable for you.
1: Yeah, it was definitely the best part, like to just be able to point, like literally send links, GitHub links to exact areas where we felt like like functional programming really shined and how it is applicable to everyday programming and then also the entire team was contributing so you can even see the pull requests of all of the entire team and how they work and yeah it, it was definitely uh, kind of a transformation of how I like to work uh, like being able to work out in the open it's like it's I think it would be hard to go back to not working out in the open
0: yeah I can imagine I've, I've heard that from a lot of people who've done similar things that Once you get used to it, there's no going back. So what about you, Steven? You were working kind of as a Ruby developer and then you got introduced to this kind of functional style iOS project. What was that like for you?
2: Yeah, so I got started in programming with Ruby on Rails and over the years I wanted to work on on apps. So I picked up iOS development, I wanna say around the third release of the SDK and back then I was indie, but I had started wanting to kind of contribute on larger teams and have more of an impact on a product. And Kickstarter was a company that kind of envisioned values that I was interested in. And even though they weren't hiring for iOS at the time, I figured I could kind of maybe sneak in like a, a Trojan horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A Ruby Trojan horse. I like yeah. it. <laughs> so it was, it was great. And it was a great experience. It was... Uh, An opportunity to kind of work with functional programming at a level that I hadn't been able to before. Um, I had considered myself somewhat versed in functional programming just because uh, Ruby and Swift ship with a lot of you know functional style methods like map and reduce and filter, Uh, but taking it to the next level was was a really uh, enlightening experience that I hadn't had before. And having like a, a whole team that was on board with learning it uh, just had a great feedback cycle for for picking things up and just exploring things like at a very deep level.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. That must have been really, really cool. Another thing that kind of came out of Kickstarter was uh, kind of this idea of doing playground-driven developments. And this is something that, of course, a lot of other people explored as well. And I've also been using playgrounds a lot for prototyping. But it seemed like you were kind of one of the first ones that I saw at least that were kind of really incorporating playgrounds into your kind of day-to-day development process, especially when doing UI development. So how did that kind of come up and and what kind of changes did you need to make to the app in order to make something like that happen?
1: I think that came up because we, so we were using storyboards to construct like view hierarchies. We didn't we didn't use like all the features of storyboards, like segues and and styling and stuff like that. But we thought it was at least a good way of just like kind of slapping together a whole bunch of UI and constraints that maybe would have been messy in code. Although doing it in code is completely fine too. Um, and I think we were just seeing like like all right, there's clearly some promise of seeing like a feedback loop of seeing kind of what the UI should look like. But clearly, like running the app navigating to that screen and you could potentially have to log in or be in a very particular state in order to get to that screen doing that, like just completely destroyed any potential promise of storyboards of a feedback loop of storyboards. And so, uh, uh, we, we're playing with Playgrounds and this was uh, one of those projects I think Steven and I worked on on the side. Like after work we'd go get drinks and just kind of like hack on some things and see like what was possible. Nice. Yeah, and we tried seeing if we could replace storyboards with Playgrounds. and. And so we just kept on hitting a bunch of hurdles. Like the first thing everyone hits is the fact that any code in your app target is just completely inaccessible to a playground. Uh, yeah. Like I think that's I think that's something that they could fix, but that's just not how it is. And so you you kind of need a, a code base in which it's going to be kind of easy to extract out all the stuff from the app target and put it into its own framework. All right, so you kind of get past that, and then you. The next thing you hit is, well, you got to be able to kind of instantiate your controllers and your views in isolation. Like it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't require a lot of ceremony um, and ritual in order to like actually create your view controller and, and make it a usable thing. And so then that kind of dovetails with like functional programming and side effects. Like you should, your view controller should be capable of existing in isolation. Right. And luckily we had already like had a lot of coding practices that, that, that wasn't a huge step for us, but I think that can be a huge step in a lot of code bases. Uh, And so we just kind of started picking off all the little problems like, you know, uh, loading a storyboard uh, from a playground turns out like not super clear how you do it. You actually, you need to like make sure you're pinning to the right bundle and stuff like that. So we just kept on figuring out all the little ins and outs. And after like a month of hacking with this, we realized we could just load up any screen, any screen whatsoever in isolation, put it in a live view, a playground live view, and just like instantly see it. And we could uh, make changes to it. We could uh, make changes to our like dependencies so we could see all the error states immediately. We could see the success states. We could see what it looks like when you're a creator, like the people who create projects on Kickstarter, or if you're just a backer, like the people who pledge to projects, all those states we just completely controlled and we're like live flipping through all those states. and then we even like took it further and we were able to swap out the entire language of the app so the app is in spanish german french japanese and maybe there's other languages now and you could instantly see what any screen looks like in any state in any language um and we just like kept on getting all these benefits and and it was just like completely another kind of transformative way of doing development it's just like like playgrounds are amazing for this and it takes a little work to get there but like once you do it it's 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 great
0: yeah that sounds uh really really amazing and uh it's funny because so many kind of of these best practices of of software development in general, but most specifically with iOS, they kind of come together where, for example, what you mentioned, in order to achieve this, you needed to both like separate things into frameworks, you needed to create these view controllers that were simpler and that didn't have like lots of dependencies. And that also ties into, you know, creating more isolated classes that minimizes the side effects and it's funny like how all these kind of things come together uh, when you're trying to build something like this
1: yeah it's it's just like it opens up doors to um kind of to be able to yeah do things like control side effects like you you may you may like be able to pitch it to someone to get them interested in it by saying oh it makes your code more testable but there's just what it really does is it it gives you opportunities in the future that like you can't even know you, those are gonna be possibilities right now. Yeah. Um, So it just leaves doors open and Playgrounds are a good uh, uh, example that then, like once we had Playgrounds, it was literally, uh, we had like a hack day at Kickstarter and I, because of all the upfront work we had done for Playgrounds, I was able to get snapshot testing in. So it was just like a day's worth of work and we get snapshot testing on everything.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that ended up even paying dividends across the team and even outside of the team. Uh, We had designers and uh, product managers who were able to check out the code base and navigate to the playgrounds to kind of see how certain things looked. And we even had uh, the ability for the localization team to just look on GitHub where all of the snapshots were recorded and ensure that all of the text was translated in the right way.
0: Yeah, it's uh, so cool. Like you start pulling these threads, right? And you start with just the idea of we want to be able to change the UI quicker. And then you just realize, okay, if we actually do this, we can also use it for this use case and this use case. And then, you know, you just put yourself in a situation where you're so much more flexible, which is amazing. Yeah. Cool. So you took a lot of these learnings kind of from building the Kickstarter app, you know, working in a functional way and and all these kind of improvements to your workflow. And now you've gone indie and you're working as freelancers and obviously you also started Point Free. So uh, first of all, uh, I know there's a kind of a functional term that to do like coding in the Point Free style. So uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what the name came from?
1: Yeah, uh, Point Free... Is a style of programming. You, you can pretty much do this in any language, or, or most languages. So it's not language specific, but it's a style of programming in which you do not even refer to the data you are like processing by a variable name. So so for example, um, in the when Swift was first announced, one of the very first slides showing just how like. Nice and expressive Swift is. They took an array of integers and did dot reduce, gave it zero and the plus sign, and said, "Look, this will sum all the integers in this array." Uh, that is written in the point-free style because you are just passing along the plus function. You're not saying dollar sign zero plus dollar sign one, or you're not saying you know you provide a closure with x and y and then you do x plus y. That that is in the point point style or the point full style, point free
0: is like you just don't even refer to arguments, you just compose functions, and that's it. And you can see this becoming more and more popular and people might not realize that they're doing point free style development, right when you're using these more functional ways like mapping over values, reducing values, passing in functions as references, and using these kind of first class function capabilities that Swift has. Uh, which can yeah. you know read to some really cool patterns and really like you mentioned really reduced verbosity in the code as well yeah
1: I think I think a lot of people have probably uh, written some point free code without even realizing it because if you've ever just done like something dot map and passed a function directly to it that is in the point free style and what it means is that you've just removed some moving parts to the code you, you're not Uh, Keeping track of the variable name for the the value of the collection that you happen to be processing right now You kind of remove all of that ceremony and you're just like I'm mapping it with this function
2: Yeah, exactly and you see a lot of people these days experimenting with keypads and keypads are kind of like uh, this compiler generated code for uh, properties on structs and and on classes and they are basically uh, two functions uh, or at least one function a getter function that accesses that property and uh, for mutable properties, uh, it's also a setter function. And you see people writing really cool code that just takes these keypads in, uh, like map overloads that take keypads and filter overloads that take keypads. And every instance of these keypads are, are just point-free code.
0: Yeah, once you can start passing like getters and setters for a property as functions, then things get really interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, yeah, I think yeah, with especially with keypads, this is something that you know, many people, including myself, only kind of now are realizing, you know, what we can do with it and coming up with some really cool use cases for it. Yeah. So uh, you picked functional programming as your topic. So you do this video series where each episode you go into kind of a functional programming topic or technique. So uh, you're obviously both very passionate about functional programming, but why did you kind of pick that as your topic for your website and for kind of this this new format?
2: So... Uh, I consider myself still like learning. Uh, I, I've gone very deep into functional programming, basically when I started at Kickstarter. Uh, but Brandon had been a- exploring this for a very long time, and that's because his background is
1: yeah, yeah, math. I did math for a, a really long time.
0: Yeah, I-, I can tell from some of your tweets. Like when you're when you're showing some code, and you're like, "This is how this all makes sense mathematically," and I'm like, "Oh, yeah. right." <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah meanwhile, I went to school for uh poetry and English and creative writing, so uh all this stuff is is rather uh new to me in in thinking about how code composes together, but it's also been I think the most exciting time in my career because I spent uh i guess the first decade or so uh just reading about all these different design patterns and learning about object oriented programming and i I always felt like I would revisit code that I wrote. Just a few months ago, and I think it's a common feeling that we all have as engineers, where you you feel like, oh, well, you need to learn this new paradigm or this new pattern to just solve all the problems that you had in the past. And it it felt, I don't know, like I was never ever really improving. I just had a better pattern recognition uh, system. Uh, And I I feel like functional programming is the ultimate uh, set of pattern recognition because you're thinking in terms of... Composition at just a very abstract level, and as soon as you can kind of relate those abstract concepts to things that we do all the time in code in ways where we might not even recognize that those uh, concepts are there just kind of hiding uh, it's it's been amazing it's it's tied together very like disparate code that i've written in very interesting kind of beautiful ways that I just never would have encountered otherwise
1: yeah and and so we like want to like do a video series so we can like so, you know, it's, the, the, the Kickstarter code base was like a great way to point to and say, look, you know, this is how a large production functional you know app could be written. But, like, also, there's still so many ideas packed in there that unless you, like, really dissect them and explain them and, and show, like, how we were often just very naturally led to those things. So it wasn't things that we felt like we were inventing. It really felt like there were, just was no other way to do it than that way. So like there's still so much more to do and and that's why we wanted to do the video series is to to be able to like take topics, break them down, apply them like the, the our whole like gimmick with uh, point free is like at the end of every episode we ask what's the point so we, right. we try to spend like in the beginning of the episode talking about something seemingly abstract and then always trying to bring it back down to earth and apply it to something real and like try to give the reasons of why one would care about these things um so yeah it was just about like finding new ways of teaching functional programming and because functional programming i think is often just like a little bit intimidating and trying to find a way past that
0: yeah, absolutely. Because when you start hearing about functional programming and you read about it maybe on like Wikipedia or something, you you hear about all these kind of terms and different concepts that you might not have encountered before and it starts to seem like this completely abstract world that you know, like you mentioned, like doesn't really maybe anchor itself in the way we work as iOS developers and or day to day problems. And yeah, that's that's why I think your your video series is so great. And why I think a lot of people like it, because it's all about taking those those concepts and actually applying them to real life. And I think there's so many learnings to to be made not only from the functional world, but from many different worlds and see like, What are some of the great practices from all these kind of disciplines and how can we use them and how can we be inspired by them and apply them to to our own world? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Cool. So speaking about functional programming, uh, Brandon, I saw earlier today that uh, you actually have a pretty exciting announcement that you are doing another edition of the Functional Swift Conference.
1: Yeah, yeah, we just announced today. Um, So I I co-organized this with Chris Eidhoff, uh, he's flying from Berlin to come stay in New York uh, for a couple of days. And December 1st, it's a Saturday. It's an all day conference. It's completely free. It's the sixth time we've done this. Uh, the previous five versions have all been also free. Uh, all the videos are up online on the website. It's funswiftconf.com. <laughs> Chris registered that domain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's just, it's been one of my favorite uh, events. Over, for the past uh four or five years because it's just like it's always like very good talks it's always lots of people like just interested in functional programming and uh yeah I, the videos they i, I just looked it up today in our like youtube stats they've had over a million minutes of watched time wow uh, it, it sounds like a lot it, it just like the videos i think are really good and, and there's been a couple of like really standout ones too that i think still to this day are referenced like uh, alexis gallagher gave a really great kind of foundational talk about protocols with associated types. And I feel like people still reference that video and it it just feels, it's a good conference and yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We're doing it again.
0: Awesome. We'll put a link in the show notes to the conference itself. And also to that video you mentioned, because that that's something I definitely want to check out as well. Yeah. Cool, so uh, now let's start segueing into our main topics. And we wanna talk about three different things on this episode. We wanna talk about functional programming, of course, like dive more deep into that and try to explain some of the concepts and talk about some of the things we we also just talked about, about how to apply some of these things to working on iOS apps. Uh, Then we wanna talk about how you built your website because uh, you are also building it completely in the open, you're building it in a functional style and uh, you've made some interesting tech decisions there that I want us to to look into. And then finally, uh, you have um, recently made this kind of different way of managing dependencies, which you started at Kickstarter. And uh, recently, Stephen, you gave a talk in Spain about this, this new dependency management technique. So we want to talk a little bit about that as well. But uh, let's start diving into functional programming. So first I thought it could be a good idea to just give a little bit of an overview of the functional programming concepts. Kind of what do we mean when we talk about functional programming and what are some of the kind of key terms involved uh, usually discussed when talking about functional programming?
2: Yeah, I I think that's a great question. And it kind of gets to the root of, I think, a lot of the confusion around functional programming. And, And that's that there really isn't a great... Uh, universally understood or agreed upon definition, uh, a lot of people have different ideas of what it means, uh, so I think it 's good to kind of define it in in terms that we can agree on yeah and to me it 's really there are almost just like two main levels for me uh, and the the first level is just the idea of programming using functions, and they may that may sound a little strange, uh, but we don 't Typically, think about using functions all the time. We we are usually working with methods and other uh, forms of abstraction that could all be written with functions but you may not really see them in the functional world until you try. Um, And there's a lot that kind of uh, is unlocked by doing that when you focus on functions and their shapes, uh, functions and the data that they take and the data that they return. You start seeing the composition very clearly because they just kind of plugged together like uh, Lego blocks. Uh, And I think that's the first level, just like getting comfortable with functions, getting comfortable with function composition. And then the second level is when you start considering uh, the kinds of functions that are out there. And uh, people have probably heard of pure functions, uh, which are functions that don't execute side effects. Uh, They're referentially transparent. So given an input, like argument to the function, it's always going to produce the same value. And there's also the idea of total functions. And, and these are functions that, for any input that you give it, it will always guarantee an output. Uh, so it, it's not going to throw an exception. It's not going to crash your app. It's not going to hang indefinitely. And these concepts are interesting and, and really help guide how you think about functional programming uh, and simplify functional programming to an extent. But I think it's at, at those two main levels where you start getting introduced to the concepts.
1: Yeah, and, and so if you put it on yourself like as a like kind of an exercise or a thought experiment, like what are things that I do that aren't using functions and how could I redo it only using functions? Well, often that's probably going to be like impossible because like maybe the, the programming language doesn't have like all the type features you need in order to do such a thing. But like that's what functional programming would kind of aim to do is rewrite everything only using functions and function composition and and often we we can't do that and we have to resort to things like objects when you need identity and protocols when you need like an abstraction of a shape and stuff like that yeah but it's kind of amazing how very very often you can do so much with just a function like literally just like a function takes an A, spits out a B, that's like sometimes the only abstraction you need.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of look at it both on a kind of micro level and look at like what your functionality does and you could start breaking things out into functions and looking at it like, like you say, A to B, like something happens, like some action gets triggered and something gets produced as a result of that action. And that is, you know, essentially a function, right? Like something happens and you get something out. Uh, But you can also then start kind of zooming out and start looking at your app more from kind of a macro perspective. And uh, there you can also start seeing things like, well, if we start looking at our views and our view controllers and screens in our app, almost like functions as well, like I go to a detail screen, that could be seen like a function of, the thing I am viewing as the input and then the action I take as the output as well, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, you can just keep going and you can try to re envision everything as a function. Like views are a really good example of they could be functions that take the data that the view needs to render its contents and then you know, out the other side comes like HTML or a view hierarchy or something. Like like we do like we don't ever think about that in terms of UI views and UI view controllers because like the the SDK doesn't really make it easy to do that. But it it is ostensibly possible to kind of imagine a world in which a view really is just a function from data to like view hierarchy or HTML DOM.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's funny because we mentioned earlier that uh, many of these kind of techniques and best practices kind of converge and. For me, the kind of uh, my lens into the kind of functional programming world was coming from testing, and I was uh, really into testing, and this is how I got kind of introduced or excited about kind of pure functions because they also make testing so much easier when you have only something that always just produces output for a given input and doesn't generate any side effects.
1: Yeah, if you if you're able to rewrite some code using just pure functions, you instantly get a level of testability that is just kind of like it's the best kind. I, it just, there's, you don't need mocks, you don't need stubs, you don't need protocols, you don't need boilerplate, you don't need anything. Like all you literally do is feed it some data and then assert what comes out the other side. So so yeah, if you're able to rewrite some kind of code that was previously using objects or protocols or something you and you were able to only express it in terms of just functions and function composition, you get a ton of testability just like for free.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Steven, uh, you mentioned there are all different levels of functional programming. And uh, once you kind of level up and you start really getting into it, you start hearing these terms like applicatives and monads and things like that. So I also thought it could be interesting to look into some of these terms. And like, when people hear about them, you know, what do they mean and where do they come from? And do, is that something that you use on a kind of day-to-day basis when developing iOS apps? Uh, we,
2: we do use them a lot. Uh but we, we use the terms when we talk to one another, but we don't expect that everyone on the team necessarily knows these terms. You can be very functional in functional programming without ever knowing what an applicative or a monad or a monoid is. These are words that I think people should look up when they're interested in diving deeper, when, when they start kind of seeing the same shape over and over again and they wonder, why is this function in this shape? What does it mean? Uh, it shows up in this domain and in this domain, which seemed very different, uh, but they 're actually the same like concept and I think these are the things that I get excited about with functional programming, but they 're also one of the things that I think makes functional programming seem so foreign and intimidating because uh, a lot of the time I think people might get introduced to these terms too early yeah. and it, it seems like, oh, well, now I have to learn this and this and this. And for me, like I, I dove in deep, but it still took a while for me to pick up and really appreciate and understand some of the concepts living in these abstractions. Um, and I, I think the terms are important. Uh, Brandon will probably back me up here. But these are terms that have been around for a very long time, and many of them come from the world of math, and they provide just a way of being on equal footing and a way of sharing ideas between like, completely different domains, like not necessarily just within computer science. Yeah. And a lot of the time we hear people saying things like maybe we should rename them. Like maybe, um, like, let's say functor, maybe we should call that mappable because uh, what a functor is really is just some kind of context, some structure that has a map function. So array, arrays have map, Optional have map, uh, and we could just call them mappables, but then we'd be ignoring, like, the history of functor. We, we wouldn't necessarily know that we could look up the concept in math and maybe see it in even uh, other domains.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because uh, I catch myself so many times saying that functional programming is a modern thing. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. actually, it's been around for decades, right? And like you say, it's, like, really anchored in math. And also, I guess it depends on kind of, you know, if we were to rename some of these things, like you say, we would kind of lose the heritage, but it also depends on kind of what kind of connection points do we want? You know, if you want to be able to talk to other people who are doing functional programming in other contexts and other languages, you also want that shared language, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And even within the kind of diehard functional communities and different languages, they, they still have adopted different function names for different concepts. Uh but they still can be rooted in these mathematical terms. And it, it really does help when you're discussing across language like barriers. Um, but that said, I, I think in the end, we can still introduce uh, ourselves to these concepts without necessarily caring about uh, these words and, and the laws behind them. Uh, I think the more and more we just get comfortable with uh, the, the functions themselves like map and reduce, and, and filter and all, all of these other wonderful functions out there just waiting to be used and enjoyed, uh, then we can maybe dive deeper.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that you only speak about monads when you're, uh, when you're on your own. Would you say that the first rule of Monad Club is to never <laughs> speak about Monad Club? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean so
2: far, in the point free series uh we have really like minimized the use of this jargon uh We really want to root the learning in just uh building intuitions is is what I want to say uh once you have an intuition around the way that a shape works and how it's shared uh among a bunch of different kind of disparate structures, then I think it's like interesting to to dive in deeper
1: yeah, I really like that. Since I, I did math for so long, like I, I've kind of fortunately built up the, the tolerance for seemingly jargony terms. And so, uh, I mean, also, I, so my first introduction to in functional programming was realizing that there's a whole bunch of uh, programmers and computer scientists out there who use the word functor how I use the word functor when I was doing math. And when I was doing math, I was like, there's no way that this is ever used outside math. And, and it comes from category <laughs> theory. And I did category theory for a long time. And I would use these words just thinking that like when I, so I was, I, I decided to, to leave grad school. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm just leaving the math behind. It's going to, that part of my life is over. And I'm now going to just go do programming. And then to like find out that there's actually... Uh, both like research level and even just like industry level people doing programming, saying the word functor and using it in the way in which I would use it. It was kind of uh, like very eye opening and and then that's like so yeah. I, I I hear these words and they don't scare me, but I I do think that the word is so the least, the least interesting thing of the entire thing. It it really is about the shape and about the universality of the shape of how you see the shape in one place. If you ever see it again, there's just an entire bag of intuition that you just get to kind of bring along and, it's just like really wonderful to see that.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool. I guess in many ways, like these terms and kind of the definition of them are used as kind of proof, right? To kind of prove the concept and that it works and it works from a mathematical sense. Yeah. All right, so next up, I want to ask you more specifically about that and how we can use some of these functional concepts when building iOS apps. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank our first sponsor. And it's my good friends at Instabug. Instabug is a super comprehensive bug and crash reporting SDK. As we all know, we all write bugs occasionally, and those bugs can sometimes make their way into production. But figuring out the root cause of one of those bugs can be really difficult and take a lot of time. We've all spent hours and hours debugging and trying to figure out what really was causing this bug. And that's exactly what Instabug helps you with. Not only does Instabug give you detailed crash reports down to the exact line of code that caused the crash and including all sorts of useful stats and information that can help you figure out exactly what went wrong, they also have the most user-friendly bug reporting tool I have ever seen. I'm telling you, both you and your testers will absolutely love this. So what happens is that when a tester encounters a bug, all they have to do is shake their phone that brings up this super nice bug reporting menu where they can attach a screenshot, a video, they can annotate all those things to show you exactly what went wrong and something that is missing maybe, and all of that goes right into Instabug where you can see all of this information in one super nice UI. You can also see the visual reproduction steps and even the view hierarchy up to the point where the bug was reported. Super cool stuff and it really reduces a lot of time consuming back and forth communication trying to figure out how to reproduce something. And the awesome thing is that integrating Instabug is so quick and easy. I've already done it for one of my projects and the onboarding process is super smooth. It just takes a few minutes to set up and it's completely free to get started as well. I really recommend that you check it out, give it a try, and I think you'll also be amazed by how much faster you can solve bugs and problems and crashes in your app. To find out more, go to instabug.com slash Sundell to get started for free. You can try it, you can see how it works and how much it can improve you and your team's workflow. And if you go to instabug.com slash Sundell and sign up and integrate Instabug before the 30th of October, They'll even give you a super cool t-shirt. I think that's such a great offer. So once again, that's instabug.com slash Sundell. And please remember to use that URL as it really helps support the show. Thank you so much to Instabug for their continued support of Swift by Sundell, which really helps making this show possible. So what are some of the kind of real life uh, scenarios when you would say that functional programming kind of really shines when building apps?
1: yeah we try to think of a, a lot of use cases uh, for this series, and we 've covered a whole bunch of them and one of our early ones, which is now a free episode, so everyone can just like go watch what they want is is how you could approach styling UI kit components with functions oh yeah so I think there 's like lots of interesting ways in which this can be done, but like we said before, like functional programming would aim to solve all problems with just functions, and it it turns out you can do ui kit styling using just functions and then combining styling is just function composition and you can you get like just all these benefits from just doing functions like it's easy to test it's easy to understand there's no layers of abstraction there's nothing really between you and the actual styled component you don't have to like crawl through all these weird abstractions and so that's like a great use case, is like you could actually just replace your entire styling, whatever you're doing for styling in your app, you could just use functions. Um, and we, kinda, we explore it more in the episode where we kind of show like how can you make it really nice and, and have like some functions that help compose other functions and, and things like that.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really cool use case. And you mentioned function composition there a couple of times, and we mentioned it before as well. So I think it could be just good to define this term as well. So, Stephen, what exactly is function composition? Uh, Function
2: composition is just the ability to take a, a free function that takes an input and spits out an output. We kind of talked about functions that go from A to B, where A and B are kind of like generic parameters. And composition is just the ability to take a function that goes from A to B, and then another function that goes from B to C, and then out of that you get a brand new function that goes from A to C. And so, as, as an example with these styling functions, uh, you might have a function that takes in a UI label and styles it in some way, and spits out like another styled UI label. Uh, you may set the font using one function, and then you might set the text color with another function. Now, these don't have A, B, and C anymore. We've kind of locked them in. And they haven't all be the same type, UI label to UI label to UI label. But in composing them, we get to change both the font and the text color using a single unit. And so the the nice thing about composition is you get a lot of reuse and you can kind of decompose the problems into smaller pieces. So you might see that you are sharing a bunch of styles in one view with a, a bunch of styles that are in another screen. And you can kind of just say, let's take the shared parts. And make another base function from which we can compose the styles for each screen.
0: Yeah. And it both uh, prevents a lot of code duplication, like you mentioned, and also makes the API a lot simpler, especially in use case, like you mentioned with theming, you wouldn't want uh, people to accidentally forget to call one of those functions, right? To only set the font, but not set the, the text color. You want like a really nice, simple, easy to use API, just one function. And then the UI label is completely styled. And, but under the hood, it's not one massive function that contains all of this logic. It's instead a series of small ones that go, Uh, in sequence to kind of end up with the final result.
1: Yeah, and we've now uh, worked with styling functions in three different code bases we did at Kickstarter uh, and then two of our contracting jobs, we've done this. And each time I think it's always been eye-opening to uh, the people we've worked with of like, like, oh, like styling can just be this simple. Like I can build up my own little library of base styling functions and I can layer them on top of each other to compose them. And then I can apply one style, but then override some other styles later so that it's not even like a rigid uh, abstraction. It's just function composition. And like it's, yeah, so we've done it over and over and each time I think like we've just seen that people really enjoy it.
0: Cool. So you've used a lot of functional programming concepts on iOS, but you've also used it a lot on the backend because, uh, your whole website pointfree.co is actually written in Swift and, uh, it's even written right on top of the new Swift and IO framework or Swift Neo that came out earlier this year. So, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a brief kind of bird's eye overview tour of the point free code base kind of, uh, Why did you make the decision to build directly on top of Swift Neo? And uh, kind of why go with Swift in the first place?
2: So we explored server-side Swift pretty early. Uh, We were very excited when it first came out because, you know, working at Kickstarter, I wasn't the only one getting stuck with Ruby all the time. Brandon occasionally, you know, jumped into the Ruby code as well. And the the server is just a really great place to explore uh, functional programming because it has a different kind of life cycle than a, a traditional iOS UI app. Uh, every single request that goes into a server spits out a response, and this is the exact same kind of shape that we see with functions. And the way that we built the Point Free backend was, basically it's a, it's a single function that takes in a request and returns a response. And that function is composed from smaller functions that help with the routing, functions that do rendering, Functions that set cookies and the headers, and everything is composed from these very small units. And the the server is just like a nice distilled version of exploring function composition, like in a, in a very deep study, which is much harder to do with UI applications.
1: Yeah, I uh, I gave a talk at Swift Summit last year, kind of doing an overview of the of how we approached uh, server side Swift. And and so again, like going back to when we were first talking about function or functional programming, the the goal of functional programming is to solve all problems with just functions. And so, like Steven said, once you realize that a server is just a function that takes a request in and a response out, like you know you're living in the function world. So. Uh, unfortunately, a function that literally takes a request in and spits out a response is like way too unwieldy to actually write. You're never going to write down a function with literally that signature. So then you start breaking it down into all its little pieces. You've got the layer that handles the routing, the layer that hander- handles like data fetching, the layer that uh, handles the rendering, and then you even break those down further and you keep going. And it's just one gigantic function composed of tons of smaller ones. Like by the time that you go from request to route, you may have passed through, I don't know, 30 functions that have all been composed together. um, And then that's like kind of magical to see. And so in that talk, I kind of walk through that process of how you break it down into smaller and smaller pieces. And then we also have a free video on Point Free where we give a tour and like we actually help people clone the repo, get the actual website running on their local machine and like walk people through like how you can uh, poke around the code base
0: and, and stuff like that. That's awesome. You can even get your viewers to help you fix bugs and stuff like that, right?
1: <laughs> Which has already happened. We've had, we have had someone fix a, a bug on the site and, and that same person now
0: wants to implement this uh, other feature for us, so yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. So uh, Swift Neo, which uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a new project from Apple, which is actually a very kind of low-level server-side Swift uh, engine for dealing with things like network uh, requests and concurrency and things like that. And uh, Swift Neo was kind of designed for scalability, and it uses a very kind of non-blocking model. It uses futures and promises and these kind of concepts to really make all the requests kind of really be performed in isolation and to not lock or overlap each other. So did this kind of design of Swift Neo, uh, really help you in terms of being able to write your server in a really functional way?
2: surprisingly not. Our first release was before Neo, uh, was available. So we kind of looked at what was out there and we, we didn't want to write our own from scratch, you know, framework that handled socket connections and everything. That, that wasn't really what we were interested in, and we probably wouldn't have been able to launch nearly as quickly if we had gone down that path. So we, we just took a look. It was out there. Uh, Katura seemed to have just the, the most popularity at the time. And what we ended up doing was, because we had built our stack, uh, and it was not really dependent on anything outside of the world, uh, and it was just that function that goes from request to response, And we just had this very lightweight wrapper, maybe 20 to 30 lines of code, and we just had a way to interface with Ketura so that a Ketura-like server could interpret our function. And when Neo came out, I think it only really took an, an hour or two to write another interpreter of that function for Neo instead. And we didn't have to change any of our application code.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And it really, again, goes to show like how these best practices really gives you a lot of flexibility and also future proofs your code because you wrote it in like a functional, very you know, decomposed way where all the building blocks are separate. You could just write an adapter, right? You you didn't have Kitura code all over your code base. And it was the same story when Tanner Nelson was on the show talking about Vapor and how they also adopted Swift Neo super quickly for the same reason and they didn't do it in a functional way with vapor but it was kind of the same idea you know really have very decomposed building blocks and that way you know really be able to adapt these new technologies much quicker yeah yeah Cool. So another interesting thing that you do, you do many interesting things with your website, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, one thing that I find particularly interesting is the way you render HTML. So many uh, different uh, you know web engines and uh, frameworks that you can use for, for web development and server-side development, they use templating. So you have an HTML template, you put some kind of magic characters, some dollar signs in there to kind of fill in your content but you've gone a quite a different route. So uh, tell us a little bit about that, Brendan. Like uh, what kind of techniques do you use for rendering your HTML? Uh,
1: We use something known as a DSL. Like a a DSL is like a a concept of how can you model um, other languages in like your kind of host language. So like HTML is kind of a a language of its own. It's like it's a, a very domain-specific language. Oh yeah, DSL stands for domain-specific language. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, very. It's just very well suited for uh, rendering documents. Um, you got paragraph tags and bold tags and stuff like that. Uh, so so it's a very you know domain-specific language and. Uh, so, when we want to render that in Swift, we uh, want to model that domain specific language with Swift types. We want to uh, rather than just having a text file full of HTML tags with those little tokens that you can interpolate values in, we want to build up an HTML document using Swift types uh, and when you distill it to its essence, the the library the DSL HTML library that we 've built. Is just an enum with like four cases or five cases or something of, of like the different semantic types of things that can be in an HTML document yeah. uh, so you start with that and you can like literally start building up HTML documents using Swift types uh, you 've got arrays of these documents and they nest they have children it 's a recursive enum. Uh, And then you write a very simple function that just traverses over the the document and renders it to a string, and then now that's the string you can send out to the browser, and you now have the ability to to build any HTML document in Swift types and render it out to a string. Uh, But because it's a Swift type, you get to transform it in ways that you would transform any array or dictionary or any value type that you've ever dealt with in Swift. So you can... Uh, traverse over it recursively and look for all the text nodes and then replace all those text nodes uh, with uh, a little black block character so it looks like a redacted document. You can just instantly redact any HTML document because you have the ability to traverse over this, uh, this Swift type. And so it, it is very different from templating languages, but it comes with a ton of benefits. Uh, you have the compiler telling you when you are making a valid document or not, because if you forget a parentheses or something, like it's just not going to compile, whereas if you forget to close a tag on HTML in a Uh, templating language, that's just going to be a silent failure and it's just gonna, you're not going to find about it until runtime. Um, And so you can just continue leveraging the Swift compiler to layer on more and more security. We We even use something called phantom types so that you can encode into the functions that help you build these documents, they encode HTML semantics into the type. So uh, you have uh, an unordered list tag, and you have a list item tag, and you're only allowed to embed list item tags in the unordered list tag. You're not allowed to put anything else in there, and uh, the LI, the list item tags, are not allowed to go anywhere else but the, the list tag. And so we can encode that requirement. And it just prevents you from ever creating that invalid document. Like if you have ever tried to put that LI tag somewhere else, you would just get a compile error because you shouldn't be doing that.
0: Yeah, it's like type safe HTML, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's type safe. And we can just continue encoding more and more of the HTML spec into
0: the types. Yeah, that's perfect. Especially for HTML, because you mentioned it will silently fail. And even worse, it will silently fail on the client as well, right? Because HTML will just do it best it can to render, and it might be completely incorrect but it still will render something right
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it'll render something you you have no idea what it'll look like it'll probably be different in every single browser and it's yeah it's just a it's a silent failure and it's it's like and it, it like these HTML pages can be very complex in in such a way that the silent failure is so hidden from like the use cases that you're used to that it could just sit there silently for months or years without you ever knowing that like you broke this thing
0: and one thing that I think is very interesting with this also is that it's a way to really remove a lot of string manipulation. And I think that traditionally, especially if you're coming from like an Objective-C background, and you've been doing iOS development for a while, we're so used to dealing with strings. And I think that often we jump to strings directly as kind of a solution to a problem, like HTML, Well, that's a string, and Identifier, that's a string, right? Where yep. Swift usually offers a better alternative, and it's very rare that there's a... Uh, that there's not a better alternative for strings except for text, right? Yeah. And I think this is a, is a great example of that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, you, you basically just want to capture as much as possible in the type system and, and that's what we've tried to do with, with the HTML uh, DSL library. And it's an open source library also.
0: Awesome. And links will be in the show notes like for everything. Cool, and one final thing that I want to talk to you about regarding your website is the way you do testing, because you actually set up snapshot tests to test the output of this HTML DSL. So Steven, tell us a little bit more about that, like uh, how does these snapshot tests work? Yeah, uh,
2: I think coming from iOS, uh, a lot of folks just have experience with snapshot tests, meaning like uh, screenshot tests. So. The very popular, you know, FB snapshot test case, or I think it's iOS snapshot test case library now, uh, is, is what most people are familiar with. And there are other snapshot testing libraries that people may not consider snapshot testing libraries. This includes, uh, there's a great library called VCR, or DVR, which was based off of VCR, which is a Ruby library. And what DVR does is it allows you to use this custom URL session that will, record requests. So you can write a bunch of tests that will actually hit the network but it'll record the response the first time and whenever you run those tests again they're not going to hit the network. And these are just two examples of snapshot tests that are really powerful. And there's kind of this third type which has become popular in JavaScript lately uh, because uh, within the React community, there are a few snapshot testing libraries that don't do screenshots, uh, but they actually take uh, serialized snapshots of React view trees so that you can kind of uh, create this reference that lives on the disk, and if you ever change the way that your React component renders, you'll get a test failure and it will spit out a nice you know, rendered diff where you see the nodes that got added and got removed, attributes that changed, and you don't have to write much test code to get coverage for the entire component. And uh, you you can write snapshots for a bunch of things, but what we've done is we've written them mostly for, uh, well, we have a screenshot test, which will actually render a web page to a WK web view and then that will live on disk, and if any of our uh, sites change just visually, we'll, we'll know. And we also take a snapshot of the text of not only the, like, headers of the request and the response, uh, but also the body of the request and the body of the response. And just like with the kind of, like, just style in uh, React, we will get these really nicely formatted diffs whenever we change anything. And it's just a really nice way to audit changes uh, that we make to the website. Like, we've caught a ton of regressions that would have just been deployed had we not had... These very in-depth snapshots of every single screen.
1: Yeah, yeah. You like work on a big feature, and you can see if the HTML in some random page that should not have changed at all, um, like you'll see just right in the diff when you open up the pull request that there's like something was changed in that HTML. Um, and yeah, it's got lots of regressions, and yeah, it's it's pretty amazing to do, and I, I think like yeah,
0: more people should be doing it. That's awesome. Yeah, and also uh, getting that output as HTML is probably a lot easier to kind of visualize than just seeing two images and saying, it's almost like playing this game, right? Find yeah. three errors, you know, find three differences. Yeah, yeah you kind
1: of want both even. like you, It's like really cool to have the screenshots because you just have that instant uh, feedback of like, I, we, you can go into our repo and find basically a screenshot of every single screen on the entire website, all captured there, you know, for history. But there's a lot of HTML changes that don't necessarily even reflect Uh, visually in the HTML and they could still be errors because you could have like a hidden document, like a hidden node uh, rendering there and it's in the HTML, but it didn't render in the image and that's still a bug just like waiting to be exploited in some way and you get like, you kind of want both of those captures.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because as you mentioned, like one big thing with these kind of tests is catching regressions in other features that you might not have realized that you were touching. Because you always have dependencies between different views, or you might have like utility functions that are used throughout an app. And you might make a change that you think, well, uh, this is not going to affect anyone else, but it ends up doing that. And that happens all the time. And having these more like broad testing strategies that is not just well, let me unit test all this code and in all this logic, but rather let me have a many, many different kinds of tests that are kind of doing different things and covering different bases. And that way, the likelihood of a regression being caught before something is merged in is so much higher.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And just trying to do this with the unit testing would take forever. And it's amazing that you can get broad test coverage in like a single line of code and you know, you're going to catch a lot of errors that you wouldn't have caught otherwise or, or even thought to have tested otherwise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so for the final main topic of this episode, we want to talk about managing dependencies because I know that you guys, you have a very interesting way to do that in the apps that you work on. But before we do, let's take another very quick break and thank this episode's second and final sponsor. And it's once again, my good friends at Amazon Web Services. If you need a data syncing or back end solution for your app, but you don't really want to maintain any back end code or infrastructure, then Amazon has got just the thing for you. AWS AppSync lets you take advantage of Amazon's powerful and fast server infrastructure but in a super easy to use way. AppSync syncs your data with the cloud, which means that you can use it to sync data between devices on all kinds of platforms, you can build real-time data-driven apps, you can do user login, you can use it as a service-side database, there's so many possibilities here. Under the hood, AppSync uses GraphQL, which lets you as the app developer decide what data that gets returned from the server, not the other way around like with REST APIs. So you can dive in and customize queries, you can chain them together, and you can really tweak things to your liking. But the beauty is you don't have to. Using this super nice web UI, you can set up all your models and database schemas visually, and you can even automatically create databases based on your data with just a few clicks. This is something that usually takes hours and hours to set up, but it's now made super easy with AWS AppSync. But then you've got subscriptions and this is where things get really cool. Using GraphQL, you can set up subscriptions to observe changes on the server. That means that your app can react in real time to changes in your database. No more pull to refresh or having to set up a timer to request new data, none of that stuff. You just tell AppSync what GraphQL query you want to observe and it takes care of the rest. Now, you might hear all of this and think, well, this sounds cool, but I've never used GraphQL before. Well, don't worry. First of all, you don't have to learn GraphQL to get started. AppSync's API Builder lets you get set up with AppSync without writing any code, and using the Amplify command line tools, you can even fully generate Swift code for all of your data that you can just use directly in your app. How cool isn't that? You can even add that as an Xcode build phase, and your model code will just automatically update. So AWS Appsync makes it super easy for iOS developers to build apps that uses GraphQL and the power of Amazon's worldwide server infrastructure, focusing on making your developer experience the best it can be. So give it a try, go to aws.amazon.com/appsync. To find out more, and if you click Resources, you'll also find guides and tutorials and everything you need to get started. Again, that's aws.amazon.com slash AppSync to get started with AppSync and Amplify. Thank you so much to Amazon Web Services for their continued support of Swift by Sundell. So you, Stephen, you just gave a very interesting talk uh, at NS Spain about how you manage dependencies in the apps that you work on. And you have this idea that you have a world object that, or a world structure that kind of holds the dependencies as functions, which I thought was really, really fascinating and very thought-provoking when I watched you do that talk. So uh, tell us a bit about what the idea was for this concept and kind of how you're solving dependency management using it.
2: Yeah, uh, so this was a concept that Brandon and I started playing with back in Kickstarter and we called it the app environment back then and uh, at the time app environment was this kind of struct I guess and it would hold on to a bunch of dependencies and a lot of those dependencies we were uh, controlling in a more traditional way. We would be making a protocol and we would conform the live instance of you know, let's say NS user defaults to the protocol, and then we would have our own mock version of the user defaults, which would also conform to the protocol. And uh, over time we realized that a lot of the traditional kind of dependency management techniques that we were uh, using could just be simplified if we got rid of the protocols. So uh, the talk may seem very controversial to folks because it uses Swift in kind of non-traditional ways. Uh, you have this just global mutable struct that, that lives at the root level. Uh, we call it current with a capital C. And then you have all the dependencies on it. And you aren't defining dependencies as functions directly. They're all just uh, vars, like mutable properties that might hold on to closures. So, the, the first dependency that I, I think is the easiest to get started with the code base is you would add a property called date on the world and date would actually hold on to a closure that takes no arguments and returns the current date. And this is exactly what the date initializer looks like. And controlling it's very simple because it's, you know, you open up your struct, you define your var date, and you just say it's equal to open brace, you call out to the date initializer, and then you do a close brace. It's just a few characters. And then throughout your code base, you replace every traditional call that you would call to uh, Apple's date initializer, you call current.date instead. And in your tests or even like in development, if you ever want to simulate a certain state, like maybe you want to make sure a screen renders correctly on a leap year, uh, you just swap it out. You just say current.date equals and you open and close uh, some curly braces and you render that specific date in there. And you, you can keep doing this. You can watch my talk and, and see some other examples, but locale, calendar, uh, the time zone, uh, even more complex dependencies like API clients. Uh, we haven't gone into some super complex ones, but you know, core location could be controlled on the world as well. And all these things, once controlled, uh, in a very lightweight manner with minimal boilerplate, you just get the ability to simulate things that would be tough to simulate. You get the ability to write tests that might have been impossible to write. and it's also just been fun to, to revisit things that uh, people consider maybe worse practices. Uh, we are dealing with global mutable state and we're dealing with uh, just basically what is a singleton uh, the singleton of all singletons
0: <laughs> exactly the mother of all singletons right yeah <laughs> and and
2: also just uh, reconsidering where protocol-oriented programming is useful. I I think it's very easy to throw protocols at almost every problem, and they can do a good job, but sometimes it's at the cost of a lot more boilerplate than you would have needed to write otherwise. Sometimes you can just look at where are protocols useful, like they're truly useful for things like collection and sequence, where you have a ton of uh, instances, but a lot of the time when we're controlling dependencies, we'll have a protocol that is only really handling two like versions. You have your mock version and your live version.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I really love about this concept is that it's so much easier to adopt, right? Because many times when people start adopting like protocol-oriented programming or just wanted to write more testable code, you know, you end up having to mock everything and you end up having to create these like many, many multi-layers of protocols and you have these kind of transit dependencies that have to be passed from one object to another to another and just to test like one single class you have to write like 10 different protocols and you have to set up dependency injection and containers and all kinds of stuff and you know i think if you look at this concept you know you can you can of course like we can talk about you know the, the shared mutable state and the singletons and there like you say there are many many things that many people would maybe consider kind of wrong or or you know not a good practice but regardless of all of the, all of that I think the 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 real power of this is just how easy it is to adopt and I think if you are in a situation where you really want to start testing but you've you've been going you know against all of these hurdles and problems doing something like this could really be kind of a uh, very fresh breath of air,
1: right? Absolutely, and we, and so now we've also worked on three code bases that have used this style of dependency, or actually four if you count the Point Free website, because we use this whole current environment world thing on the Point Free website. But um, so we've done uh, two of our uh, contracting jobs, we've introduced the environment in order to do dependency injection. And that meant we had to help them kind of wean off their previous more, like kind of a lot more boilerplate, a lot more protocols, and we were able to like kind of very piecemeal slowly move them off of that. Uh, But like it didn't, we didn't stop development in order to do this we didn't like have everyone stop everything they're doing and contribute to this big refactor it was like a very slow process and in some of the and one of those code bases in particular there's even still three dependencies living in the old old world but they 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 can they're fine living there like they they we haven't really had a need to refactor them yet but the vast majority of the dependencies have been moved into the the uh, environment and and we've gotten like better testing out of it it's Anytime someone adds a new dependency, it's just such a little work to add it. There's, like, s- so little ceremony around it. And so, yeah, it's definitely something you can layer on very slowly and just do it in the way in which, like, you're most comfortable with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's always a really, really good sign. You, I usually I, I don't want to adopt any patterns that would require me to, like, rewrite the app, right? <laughs> right yeah. uh, and I usually say that. I never want to write an app where I say I'm writing a X app where X is like a technique or a framework or something like that. Like, yeah. I don't want to be writing an RX app. Like, I yeah. fine using RX is a great tool, but I don't want to my whole app to be defined by this framework. Right. I want to be able to use something kind of piecemeal. Yeah, for sure. And another thing that I like about this approach is the fact that, well, it's not a big surprise coming from you guys that it's very functional, right? And that it adopts a lot of functional concepts. And one principle that I usually use as well, and I gave a talk uh, this fall about system design in Swift. And one of the kind of principles that I talked about was what I call locks and keys. And it's the idea that you shouldn't have access to a dependency before you can provide a model or you can provide the data that it needs to function. So, for example, if you need a user in order to build an inbox feature, uh, ideally, you should only be allowed to get access to that inbox feature when you have the user. So the user would be an argument that then returns this inbox controller or whatever it might be. And I think that this is something that you could implement quite easily using your uh, concept as well, where if everything is functions on the world, then you could say in order to get access to the inbox controller, well, you need to supply an argument that is the current user, and then you would get that back. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's really interesting. Uh, the idea of locks and keys is, is kind of like uh, functions you know, in disguise, where the, the key is the input to the function, and the, the locks are the functions. Uh, yeah. So in, in order to run a function, you need to have an instance of all the inputs. So uh, a function that takes in a user and returns a view controller that only logged in users can see, uh, is is totally thinking in the functional way,
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then you could end up with function composition on top of that where the uh, login function returns a user. You can then compose that into the function that returns the inbox controller, and yeah, there you go,
1: right and there's there's a fun operation you can do thinking of like a function from user to view controller. There's this uh, concept known as contramap, which is like a flipped version of mapping. And what it allows you to do is precompose, so that you could precompose a transformation that say goes from like a an admin to a user, and you're able to lift your function from user to view controller up to a function from admin to view controller by just precomposing with the user to admin uh, function. And so what that allows you is, like, say you had some trans- some way of transforming admins into regular users in which you just kind of forget their admin qualities, you instantly get to reuse your function that goes from user to view controller for admins by just pre-composing with that function.
0: Nice. That's really beautiful. All right. Yeah, this is a super interesting topic, and I'm sure that I'm going to do a lot more prototyping around this. Uh, you've definitely inspired me to do that. And uh, yeah, we'll see where we go. So uh, what do you say, should we round off this episode by answering some questions from the audience? Yeah, let's do it. So we're going to start here with a question from, uh, I'm going to try, it's uh, R.C. Gottlieb. And uh, the question is, what is the advantage of moving from the object-oriented paradigm to functional paradigm? And is there any tools for moving between these two paradigms?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Uh, when we live in the frameworks that we have that Apple gave to us uh, for iOS and macOS development, uh, we are very much kind of stuck in an object-oriented world. And uh, it can seem difficult or even impossible to shoehorn functional concepts directly into you know, view controllers and app delegates and, and whatnot. But it, it's a good opportunity to rethink what these interfaces are and there was a, a great talk that uh, Gary Bernhardt gave a while ago called uh, Functional Core Imperative Shell.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good one.
2: Yeah, and I think that we can learn a lot from it and and apply it in environments like, uh, it, like in Ruby and Ruby on Rails, but also in iOS and macOS development, where if we can kind of uh, take all the logic out of a view controller, like just start thinking about logicless view controllers that all they do are hook up all of the user inputs and lifecycle methods, feed that data off into maybe a pure function, and then you have the outputs like any label state that can change or any, any kind of uh, data that is mutable in that view. Uh, if you move all of that into a function and there are styles of doing this, uh, like the reducer style is, is a popular way of doing that. You feed in these inputs as actions. Uh, you give it the, the function, the current state of that view controller, and it will return a brand new updated state that can be plugged into all of like the, the, the view elements that can change. And I think that's a good way of starting to get into how you can apply you know, functional programming, even in a very object-oriented domain.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And even things like having your state clearly defined in your view controller. So for example, if you have a view controller that can have like an error state, a loading state, and a rendering state where it renders the content, even just like having those as maybe an enum with three different cases. And then like you mentioned, you have some form of reducer or some kind of function or a controller that just translates between those states. Like you've already gotten pretty far just doing those things. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And you can take things even further. Uh, I think something that, you know, makes us uh, resistant to uh, worrying about functional programming is uh, a lot of the times in iOS we are just executing side effects all the time and we may not even really be aware of it. And I think an important step to becoming uh, more proficient at functional programming is thinking about side effects thinking about like when you need to read a file from disk or write a file to disk make a network connection etc and in the reducer style one of the things that you can do is instead of like you know just somehow calling out to the view controller like or, or having a delegate you can actually capture side effects as a, a description so using a value type like an enum or a struct you might just have a way of describing something you want to do yeah so For a given view controller that might make a network request you could actually have an enum of all the different network requests that it can make and that's just data that you can test without ever hitting the network and you just feed it along to like a URL session in the view controller.
0: Yeah yeah that's super cool. All right, our next question here comes from Selpan Dimitri, and he wants to know a little bit more about your app environment uh, way of working. So he mentioned that you've probably used it now in a couple of different projects. And did you ever think of creating something like an app environment framework for reuse and different abstractions over system types? And if so, what would that look like?
2: <laughs> uh, this this is actually a conversation that Brian and I had, I think, just last week. Uh, it, it's been something that we haven't really worried about for for a long time now, because we've been using this uh, concept for a few years. Uh, and I think it's because the concept itself is very simple. Like it, it, It's really not a framework in itself. It's just uh, defining a struct and assigning some variables. Now after using it in several projects, there are things that always come up, like we're always controlling the date in the same way, we're always controlling the locale in the same way, always controlling uh, just a bunch of things in the same way. Yeah. So there might be an opportunity to kind of like have a, a mini world that has some of the essentials and being able to bring that into your, your local app world. And it would just live as like another small property on that world. But overall, I think the concept is, is simple enough where you, you don't really need a framework, but I, I can see it being useful to having like a, a reusable kind of ball of uh, dependencies.
0: Yeah, like a world kit, right? Yeah. Where, where <laughs> worlds are actually allowed to collide. <laughs> yeah, and I guess like you could have different functions that you could then plug into the current world or something like that. But since, as you mentioned, like most of these things are so lightweight, uh, maybe the cost and the overhead of, of making these reusable and sharing them might be you know higher than what you actually get back at the end of the day
2: yeah it's very possible and it's something i guess we'll have to explore when we have time
0: all right and for the final question here for this episode we have one from ivan glushko and he asks is swift a silver bullet and i think this is a really you know funny interesting question because you know we start exploring all these new different domains with swift and we have swift on the server, swift scripting you know uh, functional programming styles there's so many different ways to use swift now and i mean it begs the question like Is Swift a language that we want to use everywhere? Should we treat it as a silver bullet? And what do we think about that? So, Brendan, what do you think? Is Swift a silver bullet for you?
1: Uh, I would have a hard time thinking of a reason like not to use it for a project like assuming that i am actually able to get an environment up and running for the domain in which i'm working on like uh i've seen people do swift on like raspberry pi and i've seen it it's like a bit of a pain to get it going but if it was possible to do it i yeah i see no reason why i wouldn't use swift for pretty much everything i'm just it's like it's it's I got a very good type system. I think it, it, the type system could hopefully is going to get better, and like more things will be added to it. But like as like a default of being able to be so productive, having Swift playgrounds, like having all these things, like yeah, I think it's yeah. I don't know. I can't think of a reason why I wouldn't use it.
2: I think it's even advertised by Apple as uh, you know the multi paradigm language that can be used for systems level programming uh, up to just scripting, and. I think that you can use it for all of these things uh, i I still think it 's good to explore other languages just because uh, for for learning I mean when I was going on to like some of the more back end and front end development for the web at Kickstarter, uh, I spent a lot of time like in in other languages and exploring new languages like in the web there are uh, a bunch of interesting new functional programming languages like Elm and PureScript, and they offer all these unique ideas that, that we can learn from, and even port back to Swift. The HTML DSL we talked about earlier in Swift, it, it's not something that we invented. Like, this is a concept that appears in other languages. And uh, it, it's kind of what drives React, but it's also what drives the, the Elm architecture. And I don't know, I think you should always look outward and, and see what ideas that can be shared between languages. And uh, I also think like functional programming is one of those concepts that you just get to share between all these different languages and, and you get to port this knowledge and be productive in brand new languages just because you already know these concepts.
0: I'm going to be very diplomatic here and actually agree with both of you and, <laughs> uh, uh, because I definitely agree uh, with you, Brandon, that I also see Swift as kind of my default choice just because I love the language so much. And it also, for me, really nails that nice balance between speed, performance, and productivity, and being able to like use these really great uh, programming concepts and type safety to to build programs of all shapes and sizes. You know, whether that is scripts that I run on my machine or server side code or or app code and things like that. But I also really agree with you, Steven, that you know I think as developers sometimes we are looking a little bit too much for these silver bullets, and uh, we can get kind of narrowed in a little bit and looking outside of the box and looking at other things going around in the world and on other platforms and other solutions can really be very inspirational and bringing those concepts back i think is can be really powerful and and just enable us to to kind of get past some limitations that we might not even know that we had
2: for sure yeah definitely
0: Awesome. So that's all the questions that we have time for for this episode. Thanks so much to everyone who sent in questions and who continues to do so. Keep up sending questions, and I really, really appreciate it. But for now, we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you guys very much, both of you, for taking the time to join me on this episode. It was so much fun to talk to you about all these things. So first off, thank you so much, Brendan, for being a guest on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it was a true pleasure. And thank you so much to you too, Stephen. Yeah, thanks a lot. And keep up the good work with Point Free. Uh, make sure to check that out. Everyone is listening. Uh, like you mentioned earlier in this episode, there's a bunch of free episodes. You can sign up to get access to all of them as well. And there will be links in the show notes and it's pointfree.co. Uh, but uh, apart from that, where else can people find you online? Uh, well, I guess Twitter is I'm Brandon W. And I'm
2: Stephen uh, Salis at Twitter. Uh, stevensalies.com is my website and blog. Uh, Stephen Salis is my GitHub name. It's, it's always the same.
0: Nice. Being on brand, you're keeping on brand. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's perfect. Awesome. And you can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. And you can find everything about this show and all the weekly Swift articles at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much to Amazon Web Services and Instabug for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check them out as well, and there will be links in the show notes to all of that stuff. And thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.